Hello and welcome to Adventures in Venue Land, an EVMC podcast. Join us for this all-access pass backstage and behind the scenes with some of the brightest minds that cross the scope of the live event industry. I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. We'll introduce you to incredible guests who journey with us as we dive deep into the world of venues, tours, festivals, and everything in between. Grab your laminate and meet us in Venue Land. Today's adventure takes us to the West Coast, where we're checking in with a man who, 45 seasons ago, was a young sports photographer. And now, 45 seasons later, he's still shooting Los Angeles Kings hockey. But how did that happen? And how did he become the man behind so many iconic NBA photos, including partnering with Kobe on a book? He hosts his own podcast. Please welcome sports photographer extraordinaire Andrew Bernstein. Welcome to the podcast. Fellas, so great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Paul, uh, you were excited about this one because you, as a big photo nerd, you were saying that that Andrew here has kind of been the man behind so many of your favorite NBA photos over the years. Yeah, I mean, I think when you do any sports, really any photography, but especially like live event photography, like concerts and and sports, you know, you definitely pay closer attention when you see iconic photos. And I think you have a deeper appreciation for like angles, very subtle things that maybe your average person would see and be like, wow, what a great photo. But sometimes it's like the photographers are like, wow, what a almost impossible and improbable photo and yet amazing, you know, like how did this photographer, you know, pull this off? How are they in the right place at the right time? So of course I definitely have known about Andy's work and, you know, you and I were talking, there's, there's so many iconic photos and moments that, you know, you've been privy to, and uh, it's been a hell of a ride. It sounds like so far, I mean, plenty, you know, still going on, you're still shooting, shooting stuff right now. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. I actually had a, Really wacky game last night. Uh, went overtime, and you know, I'm feeling it this morning. But that's okay. You know, <laughs> I'm glad to still be doing it. Well, let's start off early. Let's let's go back to that day because you know I think so many of us in the industry are contacted by photographers all the time who say, "Hey, I'm just trying to build up my resume. I'd like to come shoot this event." And uh, so often we kind of have that standard response of, "We have our own team of photographers. We're all set. You're not getting in. Good luck. Start somewhere smaller." But let's talk about that day that you were a you know young sports photographer going to school at the the Art Center College of Design, and you had this credential to shoot an event. How did you? What what at that moment helped you kind of jumpstart that career? Well, I I um, kind of had a path set out for myself. Um, I don't know if it was conscious or unconscious. Probably it was a little more on the conscious side. But when I uh, transferred from University of Massachusetts to go to Art Center, it was a very um, thought out decision, let's just say that I needed to up my game in terms of learning about photography as a career. I had decided by that point, it was in the beginning of my junior year at uh, UMass, that I wanted to be a photographer of some kind, probably documentary, photojournalism, something like that. Wasn't sure sports was definitely up there, but I wasn't sure that was you know going to be the path. Um, so I had to had to leave UMass, which was difficult because, you know, my whole life was there. My, my whole family was back there and, you know, great friends group and all that stuff. But um, I made this big leap of faith, went to Art Center, where immediately I was told that I didn't belong there. Uh, you <laughs> you don't do the kind of photography that we support here. Um, we're not at school of photojournalism or commercial and art and and hardcore advertising school. Um, but, you know, I'm a. Brooklyn guy and you tell me I can't do something or I'm not supposed to be there. I'm just going to cement myself in. I'm going to say, yeah, it gives you a little chip, point. right? Yeah. 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 So that, so that's just the beginning of the answer. Cause the rest of the answer guys is that two of my teachers took me under their wing, but one in particular, Bill Robbins um, introduced me to a sports illustrated photographer that he used to work for actually as an assistant I became the fourth assistant on a, on a major shoot that this guy Lane Stewart did of the Lakers. And um, through Lane, I met the local or the regional L.A. based photographers for SI. Um, and they started taking me around to arenas. I learned the very specialized uh, 
um, technique of lighting arenas like the forum, the sports arena, poly pavilion, what have you, with big strobes. Not too many people in the country knew how to do that. I was trained by the best guy possible, um, the main lighting tech for SI, a guy named David Keith. And I saw that that this was an inroad, an opportunity for me to meet people through my assisting job. Um, I'd have to go into arenas and meet people like Lee Zeidman, for example, who was the uh, assistant operations manager at that time at the forum. You know, I'd have to ask Lee about coming in and installing strobes and getting a rigger. And then I'd meet the PR directors for the teams. And of course, the Kings and the Lakers were owned by California Sports, which was the bus family. And, you know, they had a lot of sports going on there inside the arena. So I was able to uh, work my way in, you know, I always say like, if the door has a little crack in it, you know, it's my <laughs> job to stick my foot in a little more and open it a Wiggle. little more. Yeah, yeah. And I was persistent. Um, I, I was able to sort of trade my sort of photography for access, which, you know, back then you could do, you can't do that now, but I was able to do that. And I was producing photography that was a little different, um, you know, using strobes, people weren't really doing that regularly throughout the country. There might've been really a handful, five or six photographers who were freelancers who were doing that. Um, Sports Illustrated really kind of specialized that technique. And, uh, I really, it was really fortuitous, fellas, that I was in LA at that time. This is the, you know, this is about 1979, 1980, and the beginning of the Showtime era. And here I am getting a credential, you know, to shoot uh, Magic and Kareem and the guys. But, you know, one of my early big breaks actually was uh, the LA Kings. You mentioned them earlier, Dave, and the Kings um, were very, very gracious to me as a, as a student. You know, we had we had a class where we had to produce, let's say, an annual report. Right. It was a term long project. And I think this is the fourth or fifth term of my eight terms at Art Center. And everybody's doing their project on like, you know, architecture or you know a corporate thing or, you know, an auto plant or whatever it was. Of course, I want to do it on some sports team. And I wrote to every, <laughs> and I literally wrote to every sports team, including UCLA and USC to try to get access because I, I need to have behind the scenes access for like three months. Everybody turned me down except the LA Kings. And they said, sure, kid, you can come in and you can shoot our practice. You can come to games. You can do this and that. That's and crazy. That was, yeah. That was so affirming. I mean, it was really amazing. And and to this day, the LA Kings is, they're my longest running client. Um, so I had so much gratitude towards them and, you know, the Kings, we're right down the hall from the Lakers. So everything kind of all worked out. The NBA uh -huh. brought their all-star game to the forum in 83. That was my start of working for them. Became the Dodgers team photographer in 84. That's a whole other story. And, you know, things just sort of really started to snowball at that point. And uh, that was the beginnings of the career. Sorry, that was a very long-winded answer. No, no, no. No, no it's good. I can remember back 45 years, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It is so important too. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned how the Kings kind of were like, you know, took the chance or, you know, kind of gave you that opportunity. And just thinking for myself, you know, having a, a similar opportunity where I got interested in like live music photography. And again, you know, of course, I want to shoot like stadium and arena shows. I have no portfolio. Like I'm not, you know, no one's going to approve me. So I end up reaching out to this one kind of local club that was getting some cool like mid-level acts in. And I was like, I think I can cut my teeth here. I don't think there's any way they're going to approve me. And I reached out and was like, please, can I do house photos for you? Please, please, please. And they approved it. And then you better bet, like I was at every single show there. I didn't care if it was abandoned. And no, I'm going to like shoot every single thing and take full advantage. And also mostly it was this almost like, imposter syndrome of like feeling like I didn't deserve to be there, you know? And so it was kind of like, I need to make sure that I am earning the fact that they've given me this access, you know, right. like, you know, right. so it's, but then, you know, after that, you kind of get, you get all these shots, you get more confident, you use that to build your portfolio. You know, you make, use relationships, like you said, you know, a lot of different people know other people. And, mm -hmm. uh, but it is, I think, you know, how critical do you think that is? I'm sure now as just as much, but, you know, giving opportunities for some of those young photographers. I know, I think sometimes I 
would see where there might be some sort of barriers because of this reason or that. But you see, I'm sure you see it all the time. You see some young gun who's come in they're you know, doughy eyed and just amazed that they're there. <laughs> but then you see their work and you're like, whoa, this kid is got an eye like they have a talent. They might not even know the talent they have because they don't, you know. And so, you know, the importance of kind of giving that that person, that platform where they have the opportunity to grow. Yeah, for sure. Um, you hit the nail on the head. It has to start with uh, with talent. There has to be some sort of um, seed of a talent there with the person. Um, now, yeah. you know, I think you're being humble, Paul, because you probably had more talent than you thought you had because they wouldn't have had you keep coming back, right? I mean, the two things right. that are going to probably help you as a young photographer one is talent two is not being a pain in the ass <laughs> and, yes. that's so important it's true yeah. that's so I mean, true yeah you can you can be persistent and you can be professional and you can you know have a teeny bit of a chip on your shoulder because people kind of like that you know especially you know people in my world they kind of like when you have that little bit of moxie to you you know um but for in in my position now, part of my job at the NBA, quite frankly, is helping to mentor the next generation. Um, I work directly with with the head of NBA photos, Joe Amati, and he weekly is sending me people um, who have reached out to him that he sees, you know, the beginnings of talent. Um, I dive into whatever this person, their path, whatever they want to do, um, look at their work. Uh, they send me, I, I could be at a game and people are sending me stuff to look at. And I'm more than happy to do that. Um, I do that with, uh, with, with Kara Vanderhoek, who I work, work for at uh, crypto.com arena. She's sending me people. There's interns as I have a couple of in, uh, former interns who started with me in, high school, quite frankly, at 16, 17 years old, um, who are now bona fide full-time photographers uh, earning a living and doing great. And I, I take a little bit of credit for that, you know? Um, yeah. And I have to say it's paying it forward because it was paid forward by the people before me. Um, I reached out to the great Neil Leifer. I mean, if you can imagine at 19 years old, you know, going to the Mount Rushmore of sports photographers, <laughs> like reaching out to be a lifer, right. right? I put him a letter. I had like a seventh degree of separation sort of introduction to him. <laughs> and he, he, he invited me over to his apartment for like a 20 minute meeting in New York. And that turned into a two and a half hour masterclass that has lasted, you know, 40 plus years. And he's still, I would say Neil is totally still a mentor, but of course, a great friend and supporter. And when you're in a position like Neil's, you know, you don't feel threatened by somebody like me. You actually want to help. You want to push the craft forward. I believe in my craft so much. Um, the craft of photography, sports photography, venue photography specifically, that, you know, I want to see the next generation just pick up the baton and run with it because right. I don't want to. I, I believe in it. I, I'm loyal to it. Um, I helped build it in some sense here in LA and I want it to continue after, you know, I hang it up. It's a, it's a interesting, you know, you've seen so much, you know, from, you know, Gretzky in LA to uh, a couple Stanley cups. Uh, and that's, that's just with the Kings. Right. But what, when you're taking a picture, do you know you're capturing an iconic moment or, or is it often found out in the editing process? Well, you get a little bit of a feeling that um, you might have shot something good. <laughs> I think, Paul, you can probably appreciate this. I mean, yeah. be it a concert or a, a sporting event or even in a portrait session, you know, there's that moment between photographer and subject that you just feel like everything, quote unquote, clicked, you know, that you had that, that whatever you want to call it, that connection, right? And when it comes to live event photography, be it sports, concerts, what have you, um, there are those moments, you know, there are those moments when, you know, Bruce Springsteen's on stage and I just know I nailed an amazing photo. And this is like back in the film days, but we didn't have the instant gratification of pushing the preview button, you know, camera, right. and camera shows you the picture. So the anticipation of that and having to 
either develop the film on site if it was black and white or wait for the film to be developed the next day or what have you. Um, that was a little nerve wracking, you know, but that was part sure. of the process. <laughs> Um, now in the age of digital, I mean, I literally know in the moment the, the, the camera displays, I don't even have to push the button, it displays it right in front of me. So if I get, a, you know, a LeBron dunk or, you know, a great game winning shot or there's a, a moment in the Grammys, for example, that is just like a incredible, I remember pink like flying through the arena, you know, and, and there was just a moment when I knew everything came together with the lighting and the composition and everything else. Um, you know, that that's so gratifying and, you know, takes the anxiety out of it, <laughs> quite honestly, you know, have to go home, wait all night, go back to the lab in the morning and like pray when they bring the film out that you, actually <laughs> that you think you got in your head. Sometimes I, yeah. got I was very pleasantly surprised when I would look through those rolls of film and say, wow, OK, I didn't realize I got that one or on that's the other so side, true. I thought yeah. I got that one, but mm, I was out of focus or guy's eyes were closed or the referee blocked it. And I didn't realize, you know, that kind of thing. So you could do a whole podcast on referee blocks. Oh, uh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that it's a mixed bag, but, but I prefer it the way it is now, although I'm not a huge fan of digital photography, quite frankly, but at least we get to see what we shot in the moment, which is helpful. Yeah, I always love that walk back after you're uh, um, finished shooting those first three songs and you're walking back in the, yeah. the venue underbelly and all the photographers are just looking down at their little display screen, like trying to see what <laughs> they got. Did I get something good? Did I get something good? Oh, yeah. Right. Well, it's better than doing that and, and say, did I load the camera? Did I forget? Did I put film? Right. Um, I'm sure that's never happened to either of you guys, but you never. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, you're so right. And, you know, sometimes, especially if it, you know, like you're shooting photos of like Pearl Jam and Eddie Vedder does some sort of like jump in the air, all the photographers are like, hold their breath, get yeah. some shots. And then they're looking at it later. Like, did I get the jump? How was my jump? How were your jump photos? Like what's going on? You know, it's, like, it's it, it is a fun thrill though, because I think you're exactly right too on this kind of calming. Like I know when I shoot, it's, you know, you're trying to get sort of these earmark photos that, you know, can can capture that event. And as soon as you sort of have banked, at least me, uh, have banked a few of those, then it kind of takes the pressure off. But then the funny thing is sometimes it's the ones that you're not even thinking about that you shot. And then later you're reviewing, you're like, actually, this is the best one. And I didn't yeah. even think about it. You know, it's like it seemed like the one I overlooked and ended up being, you know, the best of the bunch. And And often it is sometimes those ones that are less less standard too you know i think there are so many photographers shooting one basketball game mm -hmm. granted everyone's from a little bit of a different angle but sometimes it's you know the in between things or even like in portraits where you're catching the moments in between the poses that end up being the best photos right and you know you're catching a reaction after the dunk it might be better than the dunk itself because mm -hmm. everyone else is going to get the dunk shot and you're getting the emotion that's displayed after it yeah i mean of course, the danger these days is is the chimping, you know, is looking at the screen instead of looking at what's in front of you. Because how many Absolutely. times, we, and I'll, I'll include myself, you know, at the top of the list, miss something because, oh, I want to see what I just shot. Oh, uh oh, just missed that shot, you know. Exactly. So that's a little hard to train yourself to not do that um, and wait till, you know, a timeout or some other point where, you know, you can just you know, scroll through and see what you got. Andy, you, you're coming up on your 25-year anniversary with Crypto.com Arena, formerly Staples Center, of course, and Microsoft Theater uh, LA Live, uh, where you're currently the you know the director of photography. What is what does that title mean? How much stuff are you shooting for these guys? Well, um, I've been there since day one. Um, I, I think I've been there since before day one, actually, um, because uh, when Lee Zybin was, I think, it was employee number one or two. Um, hired by AEG to, you know, help build Staples Center. Um, this was back in like 97, I think, when I think we broke ground in 97 or 98. The building opened in 99, October 99, of course, with with uh, Four Nights of Bruce Springsteen, which is near and dear to my heart. Um, anyway, Lee uh, brought me in as director of photography for an arena that yet to be built, <laughs> um, <laughs> where, you know, 
I was shooting press conferences and of course groundbreaking and and a few community events and we we did a time lapse um, of the entire construction, which was kind of interesting doing that on film. We did it from a, an office building and overlooked the site. And I by before that, I actually had a lot of experience as a venue, my company being venue photographers, um, official photographers, because we were the official photographers of the LA Sports Arena and Coliseum for a number of years. So I was used to that. I, I did a lot of work at the forum as well. Um, not particularly in an official capacity, but they leaned on me a lot for a lot of things that they needed. So that was that was a very um, you know big move for me to be named director of photography. I had to put a, a staff together. And of course, we were there since day one. Um, there's been over 4,500 events in that in that venue alone, you know, Staples Center, now Crypto.com Arena in 24 Amazing. years. You know, and then, of course, um, Nokia Theater opened a few years later, which became Microsoft. Now it's called Peacock. We've had 15, over 1,500 events there. So combined, that's, you know, 6,000 events that my group and I have been charged with documenting and and it's a and lot of photo storage andy that's a yeah. lot of photo storage <laughs> a lot that's a lot and you know we we've had 10 championships happen inside the arena um i'm just reading here because i forgot we had uh the lakers had have had six championships the kings two and the sparks three so it's a pretty it um you know pretty great run i think in terms of arenas were right up there with Madison Square Garden in terms of just the number of events. Of course, the garden's been around a lot longer. And I grew up in the garden, um, you know, as a kid in New York, but um, it, it's it's a great place to work. You know, the diversity of events that go on there from the sport, you know, we have four professional teams currently that play in that building. No one, No one else can claim that. We have gigantic events like the Grammys and across the street, we have the ESPYs and I don't know, six or seven award shows every year. I might, I might be wrong. Maybe even more than that. Um, concerts, family shows, um, Cirque du Soleil, you name it, we've had it. Yeah. Um, so it's been fun. And I, I've been able to groom some young photographers, like I said earlier, who started off as maybe a digital tech who kind of worked their way in and, and Kara has, who I work with um, has been great with, with sort of helping the next generation sort of pick up the, the mantle here. Um, I have my go-to real core photographers that, you know, are, are really good at everything, honestly. I mean, I could send the, you know, photographer, same photographer to a Kings game tonight. We can shoot a concert tomorrow and maybe a press conference the next day or a meet and greet or, or a portrait. You, you have to be jacks of all trade uh, because that's, you know, how I built my career. And you know, it, it needs to be a seamless operation. My clients need to know that whoever is coming to tonight's event is going to produce photography at the highest level, no matter who they are, because that's what's expected of us, of me personally, right? But of my company, every single event. Mm -hmm. So how often are, how often are you shooting versus somebody else on your team? How many like how many nights a week are you out shooting an event, and are you doing concerts still yourself, or are you just pretty much focusing on the sports fun? Well, I, I've tailed back a lot over the last five or six years um, to the point where um, I, I have a, a great arrangement with the NBA that I do about every third or fourth uh, Lakers or Clippers game. Um, I do a handful of Kings games myself. I don't shoot concerts anymore, but I will shoot a Grammys or an ESPYs. And, uh, you know, I, I've kind of left it to to the, the younger generation, let's just say, or the more <clears throat> the more energetic <laughs> <laughs> group. <clears throat> and look, as long as as the end result is at the level that my client, like I said, my clients expect, uh, I have never heard from any of my clients like, uh, you know, they don't want to see this person or that work isn't good enough or, you know, there's been some tweaks and some um, critiques and things along the way, of course, and with me as well. But I feel super confident that I don't have to micromanage or look over people's shoulders because I know the job's going to get done. That's the bottom line. Sure. Andy, you have, um, I know, have traveled around to different venues and you probably have an interesting perspective 
versus, you know, someone that works at venues uh, more on like the marketing or ops side versus, you know, talent, you know, to you, what, what makes a great venue, you know, maybe from the photography perspective, but also just from the originality. I mean, obviously you're, you're in the garden, you're shooting that wide shot. You see that roof of the garden. It is so iconic. Right. And so, you know, is it a mix of, uh, you know, things that like design of the venue? Is it the hospitality? Is it all the above? Like what, what's a, makes a great venue for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's, there's a few factors. I mean, some of them have to do with just creature comfort, you know, like is the parking convenient and yeah. uh, access to the arena? Is it, um, is it difficult or easy? Like some arenas you can just drive down, drop off equipment or, just walk down the loading dock. Some arenas you can't. You know, some arenas you you have to have a credential, special credential, or you know, I have an NBA all arena credential, but sometimes they need to see the actual team credential in some places. Um, you know, when it comes to NBA kind of needs and wants, um, it really depends on the infrastructure of of the court, for example. Like, am I gonna be jammed up on the baseline with a fan's legs like literally straddling me or their knees in my back right. <laughs> which is the case in most arenas now because they really are yeah. maximizing you know how much seating they can put in on the baselines right. um give you an example the, the lakers have a big apron right they have it's probably six feet from where i sit to the baseline and there's probably about five feet six feet behind me before the there's only one row of fans the Clippers have three rows of fans, right? With the same walkway that has to be between courtside people and the stands behind them, right? Uh-huh. So they're jamming three rows into what the Lakers use as one row. So you can imagine it's very tight. The NBA has very strict restrictions on in, in, in where we can sit and, and how you know we can't be over a certain line, for example. Um, it's just the uh-huh. way it is. When it comes to hockey, um, that's an even... I, I guess bigger thing because our arena is actually a difficult arena to shoot hockey. We only have five holes cut in, in the boards. Um, you know, I come from the forum where, you know, we had, you know, we had four corners um, to shoot from um, in our arena in crypto. We only have three corners. There's more TV now. Some arenas, um, you know, have a couple of more holes than we do because they have another, you know, another corner to shoot from. Some arenas that the hole in in the boards is actually cut closer to the goal line, which sounds, you know, like a small thing, but it's actually a big thing because then you could see down ice. Where in our arena, you right. can't see the opposite goal and shoot that. Um, you know, strobes are another thing. Um, now every NBA arena is rigged with two set, at least two sets of strobes: one for the team, local team photographer, and then one for a league photographer like myself. So if I go to San Antonio or I go to Portland or, you know, Golden State or wherever I go, there's an, another set of strobes. In the old days, we had to actually bring those with us and install them and take them out. Right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then, you know, of course, things like, you know, security people and the press room and where where is my digital tech going to set up and how is the Wi-Fi connection? And is there a hard line and all that kind of stuff? So there's a lot of things on the checklist. Um, not every arena can check every box the same. Um, but if, you know, if you bat about 70 or 80%, then you're doing pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. I mean, I think it's everyone, of course, tries to do what they can. To, I mean, and sometimes they're limited by how the age of the arena, frankly, you know, sometimes you're like, yeah, I really want to roll this out. And we got some yeah. old bones in here. <laughs> like, you know, That's here's really, here really we're true. working with. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. really true. I mean, we've been to arenas where, the, you know, in the early days of you know digital and having to plug into an Ethernet line like that, they couldn't even find an Ethernet line in some old arena. <laughs> I remember going to Arco yeah. Arena in Sacramento. I don't even know if they had Wi-Fi in that building, honestly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, I mean, it sounds crazy, but, you know, the arena in San Antonio, which is now it's rebranded, but it used to be called AT&T Center. You could not sure. get, you could not get a cell signal in the AT&T Center, you know, figure that out. Um, <laughs> it's kind of, kind of a weird deal, but um, look, I'm so fortunate guys to work in a building 
primarily, you know, in crypto, but in LA where the creature comforts, I quite honestly are taken for granted. You know, I, to do what I do, what my dear friend Nat Butler has to do in Madison Square Garden and at Barclays Center in Brooklyn. And, you know, if he goes to Philly or Boston, you know, it's it's a whole other animal. You know, even dealing with parking and weather. Right. You know, schlepping gear from an outdoor parking lot in the snow to the press entrance. You know, I don't have to deal with that. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I knock on wood or Formica and uh, thank my lucky stars that my career, you know, stayed in L.A. and didn't really have to break out the winter coat too often. <laughs> Tell me about... Uh, this book uh, project you did with with Kobe and uh, the Mamba mentality. Well, you know, I I was just so fortunate, guys, that I got to meet this young guy Kobe Bryant as a 18 year old rookie. You know, I mean, it's just amazing that our relationship started the moment I met him on Media Day 1996. I saw something in him that I saw, you know, when I was his age that I kind of could relate to. And we had this sort of bond from the beginning that we didn't really figure out, like how to verbalize that until we actually were doing the book 20 years later, that we were basically as obsessed with our professions uh, and our crafts, uh, each other could respect that. You know, he was yeah. obsessed with a basketball player. I was obsessed with being a photographer. We used to have this running joke. It's like, who would get to the arena first? You know, him or me. And it would, I always won, you know. So... <laughs> <laughs> But uh, what happened was, you know, I, I obviously spent my entire his entire career in front was in front of my lens. I mean, every significant moment of his career, I safely can say I was there for all five championships, um, his you know Olympics, uh, MVPs. I was there, you know, when he met Vanessa. I was there when he became a dad. You know, when his jersey was retired and all that. So. You know, got to be the end of his career. We knew his career was coming to an end uh, in that 2015-16 season. And I just thought about the mountain of photography that I had produced that had not been published or seen. Right. Uh, there's probably some gems in there that if we really dove into it, you know, we could probably produce a book along with sort of my quote-unquote greatest hits of his career. Um, so I went to him and presented that idea. I actually made a mock-up of a Tashin Sumo book. As you guys, I'm sure, have seen these gigantic, like, they're basically like four feet across once you open them up. And, sure. um, you know, that's the, the top of the food chain when it comes to beautiful art and photography books. And I made a prototype, and he was he was very gracious and, and, and patient with me as I made the presentation. And I was there in front of his whole marketing team and they all looked at me like I was crazy. Like, why are you making this presentation to him? Um, but I <laughs> felt like I needed to get out to, to him what I wanted to do. And he very patiently went through the, the prototype and looked at it and didn't say a word. And I'm, of course, sweating bullets, you know, thinking what's going to come out now. <laughs> and he, he closed the, the book and he looked at me and he said, well, Andy, I got some good news and I got some bad news. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what's the good news? He said, <laughs> the good news is that we're going to do a book together, right? The bad news is we're not doing this book. <laughs> <laughs> Just think about, you know, he knew exactly the book he wanted to do. He knew everything he wanted to do. He was always five steps ahead of everybody else in everything. You know, even on the court, like he knew like, three plays from now, what was going to happen. You know, he just was clairvoyant in that way and so prepared. And he knew that he wanted to be able, in his own words, to tell the world what the Mamba mentality meant to him and what being the Black Mamba meant to him. Um, he, you know, he adopted this, this sort of superhero kind of character as the Black Mamba. Nobody really kind of understood that. He was very kind of vague about it changed his number from eight to 24, never really discussed that. And then he had this sort of um, mindset uh, of the Mamba mentality, like, okay, what does that mean? And basically when he was on the court, that sort of spoke for itself. You know, it's just this assassin killer, you know, take no prisoners attitude, right? Um, but he wanted to dive into it in his own words very deeply in his own book. 
and have it illustrated by my photos. That was that was the whole idea of the book. And uh, it's an incredible collaboration, as you can imagine, with one of the greatest athletes of all time. He was incredibly precise on what he wanted, um, not to the point of it being, it was challenging. It wasn't difficult per se, but you know, half of his career, keep in mind, was pre-digital, was in film, shot on film. Right. So, you know, I had some great editors back at the NBA Photos Archive in New Jersey who needed to like dive deep into the archive to find certain stuff, certain moments that he wanted to talk about. Um, book was to, it is divided into two parts. It's process, which is basically everything mentally and physically he had to do to prepare himself to play, to recover from injuries, uh, mental preparation as well. And then craft, which is everything basketball related, how he became this incredible basketball player, um, how he built that career, how he learned from previous mistakes or what, you know, he learned from playing against the greats. And we have that section is broken down playing with and, and against some of the greats in the game. Um, we had uh, Pau Gasol write the the forward and, and Phil Jackson wrote the introduction. It was just an amazing Amazing uh, compilation of of talents all across the board, and I'm just grateful that uh, that you know he asked me to do it. And now, of course, it's been it's his legacy now. That is is you know his words talking about his career and what you know what the Mamba mentality meant to him. It's now worldwide bestseller, and I think it's in 25 languages across the world. And uh, I'm just grateful again to have been part of it. I think it's interesting that you brought up this relation you all had to each other because of your dedication to your craft. And, I, you know, I was thinking about this earlier when you were saying how so much is about talent. Like when you're identifying young photographers, you're looking at their talent. And and I was kind of thinking with sports, you know, it's the same way. Everyone always talks about, you know, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard, which definitely there's some truth to that, but you do need some of that raw talent. And I think sometimes uh, people, whether they're athletes or they're photographers, they have uh, sometimes an entitlement to them because they feel like they're in their spot and they might rest on their laurels a little bit. And then you have some young people that it's like, they're hungry, they're motivated and boy, do they work really hard. And so they're going to, you know, they're going to, you know, when you have that hunger, you have that drive, you can really, you know, push yourself. And, you know, clearly you've been very successful and, and, you know, I've been doing this for many years, but also it, it, it is so true that when you look at an athlete like Kobe or, you know, people in any other sport, you know, having that similar drive, that self-motivation is so critical to kind of sustaining it and to just always find that next challenge to keep yourself kind of interested. Yeah, for sure. Look, he, he wouldn't want anybody that was less crazy than him. <laughs> at his obsessed. <laughs> you know, Kobe had a great saying that if you're not as obsessed with what you do as with what I do, we don't speak the same language. I mean, that, you know, that was definitely right. Everyone that he surrounded himself with from, from trainers to, to physical therapists to, I want to include myself, we're, you know, completely dedicated to what we do. Um, a little bit crazy, you know, and right. we could all relate to each other um, and work as a group. He had a very, very small, tight inner circle that he trusted. And it is all about trust. It's all about, uh, establishing that trust early um you know when he came in the league i'd already been 13 14 years working in the nba so he was familiar with my history with the league but also especially with the laker organization with the bus family with magic with pat riley you know mitch kupchak jerry west all the guys on the inside so it was as long as i didn't screw up at the beginning like that first or second impression because you don't really ever get a second impression you know, and and show that that above everything else that I was trustworthy to be on the inside and understand what that meant to really truly be a fly on the wall, be discreet, you know, just do my job without any fanfare, calling attention to myself, then it was going to last for a long, long time. I mean, I didn't know it would lead to a 20 year career and a worldwide bestseller, but so be it. That's how it, uh, how it happened. <laughs> um 
And that's one of the things I pride myself on, guys, is that, you know, I've, I've been working with the same people for a long, long time. Um, yeah. Like sort of coming up on 25 years at the arena, uh, you know, work with the same NBA people for 43 years. Some of them have been there as long as me. You know, the L.A. Kings. Um, it's just it's a little bit humbling when they think about it, because, um, you know, of course, when I was a young photographer and even think this far in advance. I always thought about like the next game or the next road trip <laughs> or right. the next magazine I'm going to get published in. And I had benchmarks for what I wanted to accomplish along the way, you know, as I built my career up and, you know, those, those kept, you know, being met and then I go to the next one and the next one. Um, so now sort of looking back on it, um, it's incredibly gratifying view, quite frankly. And I'm not done yet. I'm not, you know, I'm not making any big announcements over here, guys. I'm still out there, still out there shooting, you know what I'm saying? I've just been able to pull back, which has really helped me um, physically, mostly, and mentally. And I'm trying to also have enough bandwidth to really build this Legends of Sport platform that's been, um, you know, we've been, my partners and I have been working on for the last seven or eight years, which, you know, is, takes a lot of work, takes a lot of time, as you know, uh, to build something yeah. new. Tell us a little about that, about Legends of Sport. I know there's a, like a podcast is a big element. You've talked yeah. to a lot of these great legends of sport appropriately. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of these greatest WNBA players, NBA players, you know, people that you've, uh, I'm sure, shot multiple times over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, how did that come about? And what are your kind of hopes with that? Well, I have two very, very good friends who are also happen to be in, in the sports business. Um, and we, we would go to games together and, and we would see a lot of these um, players that, you know, former players that we loved um, kind of, you know, see them falling on hard times or just sort of the spotlight has moved away from them. And it kind of broke my heart a little bit because, you know, I don't want to see like my idols be struggling financially sure. or anything else. And Legends of Sport was really born out of the, the desire to kind of bring the spotlight back, document and sort of help to um, monetize really uh, iconic athletes, teams, moments, venues, and personalities in sport. Um, so we feel like Legends of Sport is a is a, a niche in the sports, um, the digital sports landscape where we don't really care about last night's score. We're not posting that on our website, but you know what? If Clay Thompson hits a game winner, which he did last night in a game against Sacramento, um, we might look back at other great game winners that have happened. You know, when did Kobe hit a great game winner? Or if Steph Curry has, you know, 18 threes or something, how does that compare with when Reggie Miller did it or, or Ray Allen or, you know, Texas Rangers just won their first World Series. So we might look back on other teams that waited a long time to win a World Series. Um, so we're, we're, we're sort of bridging the, the past with the present. And the podcast was the launching off point about six, six years ago. We're going into our seventh season where I would sit down with uh, an icon, um, a legend across the board in sports, could be a former athlete, could be somebody like Peter Goober, an owner. Um, could be Lee Zeidman, who runs a venue. Could be anybody in the world of sports. We've had entertainers on, you know, great super fans. Um, of course, amazing, iconic athletes like Jerry West and Sue Bird and Magic Johnson. And of course, you know, Kobe when our book came out. And, you know, I get to have a long form conversation with these people, which is like the greatest gift in the world <laughs> to sit down sure. and, yeah. and do that and find out really drill into like what made them tick. You know what? Just like when you, the first question you asked me, like, I was gonna say that's what we're doing to you right now. They want to know what, like, how did this person start out? Absolutely. Like, who yeah. was influential in their career? Who gave them advice? You know, what? how are they pushing it forward? What are they doing now? You know, we talk about um, social justice issues. We talk about mental health issues. We talk about pay equity. We talk about all kinds of stuff. And uh, I was doing the podcast when I was in the NBA bubble once a week from my little hotel oh, room yeah. in Orlando. I, I love doing it. 
we're um like I said, we're preparing now for season seven. We've done 200 episodes of the podcast. And uh, we have a few other things going on right now, but the podcast is definitely on our radar to start up probably around the first of the year again. That's awesome. That's so cool. I can't wait. Actually, I have not had a chance to check it out, but I do look forward to taking a taking a listen. Uh, hey, I know we're running out of time here, um, but before we let you go, I want to hit you with our fast five. Five quick questions, just looking for your instant uh, brief response. First up, do you remember the first sporting event you ever attended? Yes, it was uh, a Mets game. I don't remember who it was against, but I was probably seven, I think. And my dad took me to Shea Stadium to a Mets game. So it definitely was that. How about a favorite sporting event, whether you're working or just as a fan? That's tough, right? Oh, that's a tough one. Um I got to go back to being a fan and, and not a specific one, but my dad had season tickets to the Rangers hockey um, at, at Madison Square Garden um, my whole time growing up. I mean, I remember going to my first Ranger game. I might have been like nine. And uh, we used to go religiously with with his his brother, my uncle Julie, lived in New Jersey. And I just love going to the garden for hockey games. It was a ritual. It was how I bonded with my dad. I would have to look at that as a whole, you know, as as not sure. a specific one. I mean, there were some amazing Ranger games, like Rangers against the Bruins, Rangers against Philadelphia back in the early 70s, which were like ridiculous. Um, but as a memory, uh, I really have to put that at the top. Yeah. Is there an event that you haven't shot that you would love to shoot? Give me your bucket list event. Could be a, could be a concert, could be a sporting mm-hmm. event. What's something that's still on your list that, that you still haven't had the chance to shoot yet? Wow, that's a great question, man. Um, I I would love. I used to shoot a lot of tennis when I first started. I would love to go to Wimbledon. I would love to go to go to the French Open at Roland Garros. Uh, I I watch those on TV and I just salivate, you know, because I have some good <laughs> friends. My my good friend Jen Podheiser runs the photography for the U.S. Open, and uh, you know, I I just love seeing. And she hires you know some really good friends of ours, you know, mutually. And I love seeing their work. Um, there's something about tennis. It's like almost like basketball. It's so graceful, but like ferocious at the same time, you know? Yeah, you that's a great incredible way to put personalities. it. Personalities. Um, I wouldn't mind going to a, another Super Bowl or two. I've done, I think, probably three Super Bowls in my life. You know, there's nothing like a Stanley Cup final when you get to a game seven, which I've been to a couple of times. Um, that's pretty amazing. Uh, of course, in NBA Finals, I, I I can't even tell you how many Game Sevens I've been across, you know, from the playoffs throughout my entire career. But a Game Seven in the NBA Finals is pretty incredible. I I, I would love to do another Game Seven in the NBA Final for sure. How about your favorite thing to do on a day off? Uh, well, we have this little cabin up in the mountains, which believe it or not, there are mountains in Southern California, about an hour and a half. I love going up there. If I have a day or two, my wife and I bring our daughter sometimes if she can get away. Um, it's just something about being in nature, literally like getting off the freeway and heading up the hill, which is only an, like a half an hour from the freeway to our cabin. It's just so cathartic. And and um, being in the trees, as my wife likes to say, it's just so invigorating. So that's that's something we like to do. We like to go up there and like to walk um even in the winter we get a lot of snow up there which is kind of crazy to think about in southern california but that's you know that's my go-to right now um i i don't play golf doesn't say doesn't mean i won't ever play golf but i don't play <laughs> golf I've, I've taken up tennis again which i love um so that's a lot of fun we play tennis as a family so that's good yeah. All right, last one. Uh, what's the theme song to your TV show? So there's a TV show where cameras follow you around. It's the Andy Bernstein show, and uh, it's all about you and your life. What's the song that plays over the opening credits? Um, it's got to be No Surrender by Bruce Springsteen, for sure. No, no retreat. No, no retreat, maybe no surrender. Yeah, no surrender. I mean, it's like, you know, you get knocked down, you get back up. I mean, I learned this from a lot of people, my, you know, from my dad, from growing up in Brooklyn, from, you know, going to a school that didn't want me to, <laughs> to all kinds of stuff. And then, you know, getting introduced to people like, like magic and working around Pat Riley and just seeing how these guys operate. 
that it's a no prisoners, no surrender attitude. And of course, you know, the Mamba himself, um, who was such an inspiration to me. And, uh, you know, no surrender means a lot to me in a lot of different ways in my personal life and my business life. So um, that's got to be the theme song. I love that. that. All right. So give give us some plugs. If somebody wants to check out your work or follow along with your, your adventures or check out Legend Sport, give me all the plugs here. Yeah, so you can see my work, um, you know, my venue work and that for my group, of course, you can see on the, the crypto.com arena, uh, Instagram, um, Peacock Theater, if there's an event there. Um, but uh, my personal work, you can see on Instagram primarily at ADB Photo Inc. Um, our Instagram at Legends of Sport is at Legends of Sport. And we do a lot of cross platforming between the two. And we're building our YouTube channel. So that's Legends of Sport on YouTube. And uh, the podcast, of course, called Legends of Sport, our, uh, our home base is iHeart, but of course you can get it on any podcast network. All of our podcasts are cataloged there, so you can just pick one out, listen to it. I would love to hear people's comments. We, we really pay a lot of attention to the comments on social media. Um, people- Sports fans aren't shy them. about sharing their thoughts. Right, <laughs> and people say, well, why don't you introduce so-and-so? Or, uh, why don't you interview this guy or why don't you do that? And we're like, yeah, we'll do that. Sure. Great so, idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then just, uh, just a little coming attraction here, fellas, is that uh, uh, we at Legends of Sport are working with Vanessa Bryant, Kobe's widow, on a, a book um, of all the murals, the Kobe and Gigi Bryant murals all over the world. Oh, We've that's cool. Production that. On that book. Stay tuned on that. Maybe we'll talk uh, next year or so when the book is ready to come out. But um, that's a very, very exciting project to be collaborating with her. Um, I'm humbled and, and really grateful to her that she wanted to do it with us and with me. So I'm excited about that. That's awesome. Cool. Hey, I really appreciate your time today and, and best of luck with uh, with all the years and, and happy uh, uh, 45th and 25th and all the anniversaries you're celebrating this year. <laughs> Thank you, fellas. So great to connect with you. Thanks for having me. Of course. And a big thanks to everybody for listening to this episode of Adventures in Venue Land. Remember, you can subscribe and find more episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We do love your five-star reviews. It helps others find us. Until the next adventure, I'm Dave Ruttleberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. Thanks for listening, everyone. Adventures in Venueland is a side project of the Event and Venue Marketing Conference, a marketing conference that brings together diversified event and venue professionals to cultivate education, collaboration, and innovation for the growing sports and live entertainment industry. Find out more at eventvenuemarketing.com. Audio editing and mixing by Camille Faulkner. Design and digital advertising by Megan Ebeck. Copywriting and publicity by Samantha Marker. Guest booking and brand strategies by Paul Hooper. Guest research by Dave Ruttleberger. Marketing strategies by Paul Hooper, Megan Ebeck, and Samantha Marker. Thanks for joining us. Until the next adventure.